Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We have a number of distinguished nominees here today, uh, and we welcome them. Uh, we also have a number of very distinguished introducers, and we welcome you. We thank you for coming to our committee. Uh, in order for you to be able to go ahead and do other business today, uh, Senator Cardin and I will uh, defer relative to making opening comments and let you go ahead and do what you need to do. We look forward to those comments, and then we realize you'll probably like to, to go elsewhere. I know Senator McConnell uh, is also coming today, and Senator Rubio, but why don't we just start in the order of seniority. We, um, we appreciate so much you being here before that would our be committee. Joe Lieberman, Mr. Yeah, so. now, you're not talking about age. You're talking no. about Well, actually, <laughs> I was. Yeah. We thought we'd. Uh, I'm going to yield to the yeah. senators. <laughs> but uh, we welcome you all. Um, and Senator Cornyn, why don't you start? Thank we you. thank you for your distinguished service to our country and for being here today. And if you will, begin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin and members of the committee. It's a pleasure to be back here. It's the second time in less than a couple of weeks. Um, it's not often I darken the door at the Foreign Relations Committee, but as long as the President keeps nominating Texans, I promise to come back often. I can't think of a better nominee uh, to an important ambassadorship uh, in Brussels than our, our dear friend Kay Bailey Hutchison. Uh, she truly is someone who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Um, I had the honor of serving alongside of Kay for 10 years in the Senate, and when I got here, there were some things that... Uh, I figured out pretty quickly about her. Number one, she is tireless. You would be hard-pressed to find a senator in the chamber who worked harder than Kay Hutchison. Second, she was relentless. She would not stop until she achieved her objective. And most importantly, she always did what she thought was the right thing for Texas, whether it was working with Republicans or Democrats. Uh, that was always her guiding star. As I think about the type of individual best suited to represent the U.S. on the world stage, I can't think of no one better than Kay. She's always been a trailblazer. After graduating from the University of Texas Law School, she became the first female on-air news reporter in Houston. And years later, she became the first woman to represent Texas here in the Senate. When she was here, as you'll recall, her leadership was quite evident. She served as a ranking member of the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee and chair of the Republican Policy Committee. Kay is not, was not, and is not afraid of working across the aisle. It's the way we, she was able to get so much done during her time here, not only on behalf of Texas, but on behalf of the nation. She's always been a fierce advocate for military families. It's no exaggeration to say that every base in our, in our state has felt the impact of her work. And she's worked hard for veterans to make sure they get the medical assistance, the job training, and support they needed when they came home. And she's worked hard to promote things like tax relief for hardworking Texas families. And she made it easier for women to save for their retirement and work to reduce the unfair marriage penalty tax. During her time here, Kay served on the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee as well. So I know that promoting American global leadership and strong diplomacy guided her committee work and will prepare her well for her duties in Brussels. So I think her time in this chamber was instructive as to how she'll serve in this new position. We are, as we all know, in a time of increasing instability across the globe. And now more than ever, our friends and allies need a determined and steady hand representing the United States. Senator Hutchison has the experience, determination, and tact 
required for our representative to Brussels, and there's no one better prepared to successfully navigate and strengthen our relationships on the world stage. Kay will do it, and she'll do it with poise and grace. So I look forward to supporting her confirmation on the Senate floor. And once again, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Senator Cardin, and members of the committee for allowing me to say a few words on behalf of Kay Bailey Hutchison. We thank you so much for being here. Senator McConnell, you're welcome to go next, or if you want to get your thoughts together, we can go to Senator Cruz. It is your choice. Uh, we defer to you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, since I need to also open the Senate, if you wouldn't mind, if Senator Cruz wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd like to go ahead. Well, listen, we thank you very much for being here. It's an <laughs> honor you, to Mr. have Chairman. you, and we look forward to your comments. It's my privilege to be here today to recommend uh, Kelly Knightcraft, native of Glasgow, Kentucky, to serve as the next United States Ambassador to Canada. President Trump made a strong choice when he nominated her, and in today's hearing, this committee will learn of her experience and skill in advancing the priorities of the United States. Ms. Kraft has a distinguished record of service in my home state of Kentucky and to our nation. She helped lead organizations like the United Way of the Bluegrass, the YMCA of Central Kentucky, the Salvation Army of Lexington, and the Center for Rural Development. She's also served on the Board of Trustees of our shared alma mater, the University of Kentucky. In 2007, President Bush named her to serve as an alternative representative for the U.S. delegation to the United Nations General Assembly. The Senate confirmed Ms. Kraft to that position by unanimous consent. In the General Assembly, she represented the United States' position on the new Partnership for Africa Development, her ability to build consensus among international stakeholders toward a common goal served her well at the UN, and I believe it also makes her an ideal candidate to be the next ambassador to Canada. The United States and Canada are closely interconnected, sharing a common history and set of values, while boasting a strong bilateral relationship founded on robust security and trade relations. The relationship with Canada is particularly important for Kentucky. Direct investment from Canada supports thousands of Kentucky jobs, and Canada is the Commonwealth's number one export market. Maintaining this strong relationship between our two nations is vital. So Ms. Kraft has the necessary skills and experience to continue the long history of friendship between our nations. Her work will continue to serve the United States' interests very well. I'd also like to recognize her husband, my good friend Joe Kraft, another extraordinary Kentuckian who's here today to support his wife's nomination. So thanks again, Mr. Chairman, for allowing me to testify on behalf of Kelly. I appreciate your consideration of her nomination, and we look forward to her confirmation. Thank you so much for being here. Senator Cornyn, if you feel like you want to help open the floor, you're welcome to also uh, leave. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you both. Um, Senator Cruz. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, uh, it is a privilege to join you this morning, uh, especially with the great honor of introducing my friend and, and a true Texas le legend, uh, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison. Uh, many of you served with Kay uh, and know her well as a friend and colleague. Uh, all of you I know respect Kay, uh, and a great many I know were grieved uh, when you saw her successor. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. <laughs> Eyes and nays. <laughs> I object. 
But I have to say, I think Kay Bailey Hutchison is an extraordinary choice uh, to be ambassador to NATO. Uh, the president has chosen well, and I am confident uh, that the Senate will agree in that assessment. Uh, Kay's history in Texas, she was born in Galveston and grew up in Lamarck. She's a proud Texas Longhorn, having earned her law degree at the University of Texas. Uh, her late husband, Ray, was also a Texas public servant, uh, having served in the Texas House and also as chairman uh, of the state Republican Party. And their two children, Bailey and Houston, are, are the joys of her life. Senator Hutchison began her public service career in the Texas House and honorably served our home state for 20 years in this body where she built a distinguished record of service on the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Defense and Military Construction Appropriation Subcommittees that will give her direct and powerful insight into the security issues facing Europe and North America. Few statesmen have the qualifications, the relationships, and the gravitas that Senator Hutchison brings to this position. After years of inadequate resourcing, Kay led an effort in the Senate to rebuild our military and help prepare to meet the new, more stringent demands of the global war on terror. After the Kosovo conflict, Kay led the first Senate CODEL to the region. There she met with NATO leaders to discuss the future of our NATO endeavor and to help bring stability and democratic elections to the region. In fact, Kay has toured every major conflict since her arrival in the Senate in 1993. From Bosnia to Iraq, Afghanistan to Serbia, Senator Hutchison made it a priority to meet with commanders in the fields, with troops in areas of combat, and with international leaders to make sure that they had the resources that our military needed to carry out their mission. She has a heart for the men and women serving our nation. Her commitment to safeguarding America's national security will serve her well in this new role, protecting America's and our allies' interests as U.S. Ambassador to NATO. Kay also has an eye for talent. When I arrived in this body, in my office among the staff, we had a, a John Cornyn mafia uh, as part of the staff. We had a Rick Perry mafia as part of the staff. But there was no bigger group than the KBH Mafia, uh, which was and is a very large chunk of our team because she has such a good eye for talent and she trains them well. Uh, that will serve her well as our ambassador. You know, I agree with the president's effort to extract more from our allies in support of NATO. I think that's a positive direction for our country. But I think it is also very good to have a U.S. ambassador who has a strong will and a gracious smile to represent America, to represent America with our allies and strengthen those friendships and alliances. And I'm proud to support her nomination. Well, thank you for being here. I think we would all agree we've had two very strong-willed senators uh, in this seat. <laughs> and uh, so we can save the best for last, uh, Senator Lieberman, I want to introduce Senator Rubio. Thank you uh, for this opportunity and the privilege of introducing Mr. Lewis Eisenberg of Florida to be the ambassador to the Italian Republic and to the, Republican, to the Republic of San Marino. Mr. Eisenberg is a co-founder and managing partner of Iron Hill Investments in New York. From 1995 to 2001, he was the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, responsible for overseeing the region's international airports and seaports, bridges, tunnels, and the World Trade Center. He was named a founding board member of the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, 
which was formed after the terrorist attacks of the 11th of September of 2001. He chaired its victims, families, and transportation advisory councils for two years, from 2001 to 2003. Mr. Eisenberg was a senior advisor for Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts from 2009 to 15, co-chairman of Granite Capital International Group, both in New York from 1990 to 2011. He spent 23 years at Goldman Sachs, where he served as a general partner and co-head of the equity division. He's the recipient of numerous awards and has been honored by the American Jewish Committee, the National Conference for Community and Justice, Monmouth University, Liberty Science Center, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Newark, New Jersey, and, and the New Jersey Alliance for Action. As you can see, he has strong links to New York and New Jersey, so you may ask, well, what does that have to do with Florida? Well, that's very typical of Florida, strong links to New York and New Jersey. And, uh, but, but I know him as a resident of Florida and have known him for quite a while along with his family. I'm excited for him and for the country. He'll be an incredible representative of the United States uh, with an important ally. He is, I believe, deeply qualified for this position, and we are frankly grateful for his willingness to serve his country and our country. So thank you, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Lieberman. Thanks, Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator Cardin, members of the committee. It's good to be back here. Uh, let me say first just a uh, loud, uh, sincere amen to all the uh, positive words said about Kay Billy Hutchison and Lou Eisenberg, who, who I've been privileged to know well. I'm honored to be here this morning to introduce to the committee uh, K.T. McFarland as the president's nominee to be our ambassador to the Republic of Singapore. Uh, K.T. has had a remarkable career, which uh, just says so loudly that she is ready to take on this post. Uh, you, you can see it in the documents before you. If you've had a chance to meet her, I think you uh, probably appreciate it. There are two letters that have been filed with the committee that I, I think speak <clears throat> really with a, in a very unique way about the arc of uh, Katie's uh, life and service. The first is from Dr. Henry Kissinger who writes on her behalf as a student at Georgetown or George Washington University. KT worked as an assistant for uh, Henry Kissinger when he was national security advisor in the early uh, 70s and stayed with him through the Nixon and Ford uh, administrations. Uh, the second letter is from uh, General H.R. McMaster, uh, who uh, KT has worked with over the last several months as a deputy uh, national security advisor. And I think those two letters together tell you how qualified she is. But I'm really here as a friend of KT's and uh, uh, as a friend of her husband's, Alan McFarland. Uh, and I want to just speak briefly about them in that regard. Uh, Alan and I uh, went to college and law school together. I will not embarrass either of us uh, by telling you how long we know each other. Maybe I'll say in general terms, we're in the sixth decade of our friendship. Uh, and it's been a good friendship that's taken us through all the ups and downs of life. I can tell you based on that, that KT and I'll add Alan are people of great character, uh, high principle, a commitment to living uh, an ethical life. They will bring with them, if confirmed, to Singapore uh, a spirit of patriotism, uh, and honor and a commitment to improving the relationship between uh, the, our two Im important countries um, that are uh, such great allies. Uh, I thought that, that I would tell you two stories to indicate briefly uh, who, who these people are. In my, on the election night, the first time I ran for the U.S. Senate when I got elected, 
I was a, an underdog. It, it was very close. Um, it, it wasn't until well after 11 p.m. that I felt confident enough to go down and declare victory. Um, we all remember um, the, the uh, maxim that uh, victory has a thousand parents, defeat is an orphan. My suite at the hotel in Hartford had filled up amazingly as the returns uh, began to come in. <laughs> and uh, finally, when I was heading out, somebody came over to me and said, there's somebody named Alan McFarland on the phone. So I, I was, it was such a drawback to friendship, earlier life. I went and took the call, and Alan was you know, full of an excitement and congratulations. And he said, hey, incidentally, um, KT had an apartment in Washington, which we're not using because she's in New York with me. If you need a place to live uh, for a while, why don't you use it? So I totally forgot about it, went down, got swept up in all the post-election stuff about a month later because Hadassah is going to stay in um, Connecticut with our kids until June when they finish school. I had one of those uh, pre-senatorial uh, moments where you say, where am I going to live? <laughs> and I remember the call. called, and they graciously uh, had me as their tenant for uh, five or six months. So we, I would add to KT's resume that she once operated a uh, shelter for a homeless senator and uh, <laughs> did it well. The second is a very different kind of story. You'll note on KT's resume that her work life has been divided into two. And in between, beginning in the mid-'80s, she made a tough decision, which was that she was going to devote herself to being uh, a wife and mother, uh, eventually of five uh, children. And uh, one of them is a story that says a lot about Alan and KT. Um, in 1995, Alan's first wife, Nell, who was married to a, a man whom some of us knew named David Sawyer, died within a short period of time of each other. And they left a son who was essentially alone. And um, it's a long story, but the, bo the bottom line is that Alan and KT stepped forward and um, adopted Luke and have raised him as their child. It it's really says a lot about them. I grew up with a phrase from the Talmud that if you save one life, it is as if you saved the entire world. Uh, and they saved one life, and uh, in that, I think, the entire world. So uh, for all of these reasons, both professional and uh, personal, I recommend uh, KT McFarland to you without hesitation. I truly believe she uh, deserves your support, that she deserves nonpartisan support uh, from the Senate. Thank you very much. We thank you both very much for being here. Before I turn to Senator Menendez, uh, who's going to introduce our next uh, Ambassador nominee, y'all are welcome if you wish to go about uh, other business. We, we really do appreciate both of you being here and elevating our meeting in the thank way you. you have. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we generally say that the United States and the United Kingdom have a special relationship. And indeed, there are a few other nations with whom our bilateral relationship is as expansive and as important as the United Kingdom. And that relationship is based on shared values of our two nations, democracy, respect for human rights, and having helped shape the post-war rules-based international order. Maintaining and strengthening this relationship is critical for the United States national security, for our transatlantic relationships in general, 
and many of our foreign and military engagements around the world. Being a diplomat requires certain qualities and the ability to navigate uncertain waters. Some new diplomats try their hand at this endeavor with the best intentions, but fumble in their execution. Hailing from the great state of New Jersey, however, I have no doubt that Robert Wood, Woody Johnson, is up to the task and will be an excellent representative of the United States. Uh, Mr. Johnson is the chairman and CEO of the Johnson Company. He is the CEO of the New York Jets. It's the one, one of the few things that I have in disagreement with him. They should be the New Jersey uh, Jets, but uh, in any event, they are the New York Jets. Um, and he has a wide range of civic uh, uh, endeavors and also sits on the Council of Foreign Relations. As the United Kingdom continues to sort out the practical implications of Brexit, including future trade deals, his successful private sector experience, I think, will be critical. In our conversation earlier this week, he expressed his appreciation for the importance of our robust security relationship and intelligence sharing operations with the United Kingdom. He has spoken of how he will draw on the knowledge and experience of the career officers with whom he has met, and his extensive management experience will be an asset in running a large embassy in London. He has assured me uh, that he will consult with this committee, something we always like to hear from our nominees, uh, and I believe it is critically important that our embassy in London has the leadership it needs to continue strengthening the already deep bond between our two nations. And I believe Mr. Johnson uh, can provide that leadership, and I uh, welcome him to the committee, Mr. Chairman. Thank you so much. Um, and I apologize for not knowing uh, you were introduced until just a moment ago. We thank you for that introduction and thank all of you for being here. I think we have a extremely distinguished panel here today. I'm glad that all of you are here together. And I appreciate your desire to serve our country in the way that you have. Um, we're going to consider, as we all know, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, our largest single trading partner as of May 2017. Throughout the Cold War and to this day, Canada has stood shoulder to shoulder with the United States through the North American Aerospace Defense Command, better known as NORAD. Canada's military is an important NATO partner, and we have close intelligence sharing and law enforcement ties. Canada values its relationship with the United States, and we value our very close relationship with our neighbor to the north. This week, Prime Minister Trudeau joined Vice President Pence in speaking to the U.S. National Governors Association. Canada also supports working with the U.S. and Mexico to update the North American Free Trade Agreement. I will also have a conversation with our nominee to the U.S. Permanent Rep as U.S. Permanent Representative to NATO. NATO faces the threat of an increasingly antagonistic Russia, which has occupied Crimea and eastern regions of Ukraine, a country once considered a contender for NATO membership. NATO has increased its deployments in the Baltic region in recent months due to fears of a potential class clash with Russia there. Both NATO itself and individual member states are members of the U.S.-led coalition conducting airstrikes against ISIS. Maintaining a strong relation a NATO depends not just on the United States, but all members meeting their commitments on defense, and we thank you for being here to do that. We will look to the nominee of the Master of United Kingdom as well, one of the United States' most critical allies. The bilateral U.S.-U.K. relationship has grown into a global network of military, intelligence, and trade partnerships that together fight terrorism, resist Russian aggression, and drive economic growth. United Kingdom has not just deployed its military 
beside ours, it has helped us build the international framework that includes the United Nations and NATO together. Our countries work together with these institutions to help make the world a safer and more prosperous place. We thank you for being here. We'll also have a chance to engage the nominee uh, to be ambassador to Italy, where we also have positive and strong relations. Italy is now on the UN Security Council and continues to play a key role in European and Mediterranean security policy. Um, we thank you for being here. Lastly, we'll consider the nominee to Singapore. Singapore is one of our strongest security partners in Southeast Asia and plays rotational host to the U.S. naval vessels operating in the region. Singapore is also a key economic and trading partner for the United States and the region. Our strategic partnership is vital to maintaining peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. Um, we thank you for being here. I really am uh, elated that all of you are here together. I think you're going to do an outstanding job for our nation. I know you are honored uh, to be nominated to these positions. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, my friend Ben Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me welcome all five of our nominees and, and their families. First, I really want to thank each of you for being willing to serve your country uh, and thank your families because we recognize this cannot be done without a supportive family. So we, we thank you. Uh, the uh, five positions that are uh, being nominated are extremely important to our country. Uh, and Mr. Chairman, uh, I hope that we'll be a little bit lenient as far as the time limits are concerned because these are extremely important countries and uh, I know members may have uh, questions that they want to ask to more than one witness. And secondly, I would ask our nominees that we do questions for the record. I know Kay's well aware of that. Uh, I would ask that you give that personal attention. I know sometimes uh, it's, it, it, there's a volume issue here because I know we're not going to be able to get through all the questions we would want to ask you directly and the questions for the records are very important. And um, I, I know I'm going to defer a lot of my questions uh, for the record. So I, just ask that you, that you recognize that because of the large number that is here and the importance of the countries that are represented, uh, that this is our opportunity to, to get important issues aired that are in, that in the portfolios that you will be responsible for. It's particularly a pleasure to have Kay Bailey Hutchinson back before our committee. And it, it must be a little bit of different experience on the other side of the dais, but we thank you very much. And, uh, uh, I know that you're going to do an incredible service to our country at NATO, and uh, I had a chance to go over some of those issues in my office. And I, I, NATO is so important to our national security. Uh, probably today, more than ever before, there are challenges. We know that Russia's aggression uh, really is a major concern to many of our NATO partners uh, and our strategies on how we deal with Russia's incursions into Ukraine and Georgia, Moldova is a real challenge to NATO. We know Afghanistan is a continued challenge to NATO. So you're going to have your plate full, and we, we look forward to working with you in this committee. And I, I particularly, Mr. Chairman, like one of the suggestions that Senator Hutchinson made, that how we can formally um, observe uh, the work at NATO and have uh, at least a representative of our committees work directly with uh, our ambassador. So I thank you very much for that suggestion. I thought it was an excellent suggestion. Uh, with all four of the countries that are represented here, there's a common thread. We have democratic countries that share our principles of democracy that are critically important to us for intelligence gathering and sharing of intelligence information. They're major trading partners that are critically important to our economy 
And many of these countries share directly in our military burdens and whenever we need help, it's those countries that we turn to first um, that, to help us in regards to our uh, national security concerns. So these are really close partners. The chairman knows that I always raise issues uh, concerning human rights. And you might think that when you're looking at four democratic countries that maybe that's not as important. Promoting American values are always important. Our strength is in our values, and our values are respect for human rights for all of its citizens. So particularly as it relates to Singapore, we do have issues. Singapore does not protect people against discrimination based upon their sexual orientation or, or gender identity. They also are ranked near the bottom in their protection of, the, of, of, of uh, many of the human rights issues. The, um, Reporters Without Borders ranks Singapore 151st out of 180 nations in its annual World Press Freedom Index, behind neighbors such as Burma, Cambodia, and Malaysia. So we will be asking you, Ms. McFarland, how you will represent American values in Singapore, a friend and trading partner in a major commerce center as to how we can get advancements on these universal human rights which I believe are very, very important. I, I really did enjoy uh, the conversations I had with several of you, and I want to just underscore the point that Senator Menendez said in regards to, to Mr. Johnson, and the same thing was true of Mrs. Kraft, that there, there's a real genuine desire to work with this committee, members of Congress, to, to further the missions of the United States uh, in the countries that you represent. So I look forward to a robust discussion, and I, again, thank you all for your willingness to serve our country. Thank you for your comments. <clears throat> Senator uh, Hutchinson, uh, we're glad to have you back. And since uh, you've done this so many times on this side of the dais, we, we thought it'd be good for you to lead off and, and, uh, and help the others get started. I understand that at least the first five rows are family members and friends. Uh, it may be that the entire audience is that. We hope so. But uh, uh, please feel free as you uh, come to your turn to introduce your family and friends who are here with you. We thank them for their willingness to support you in the effort that you're getting ready to undertake with that. Senator Hutchinson, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. And um, I don't have my two teenagers here. Many of you uh, knew my teenagers when they were little babies and I was walking the halls with them um, because they're both uh, back in Dallas. I have my neighbor from Virginia, Mary Jarrett. But I want to thank you. We do hope to get you to NATO uh, by the time school enrollment starts. So. Hey, thank, thank you. you. Uh, it's so important uh, that my son starts school on time. So I thank both of you for acknowledging that. And I also want to thank you, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Ranking Member, for your courtesies uh, throughout this process and your leadership and the way you work this committee together. I appreciate it so much. I appreciate all the members of the committee, and I know how much you spend in time and effort uh, to make sure that our foreign policy, our ambassadors, our State Department, our military in the Defense Department um, are covered in the Senate. You do a great job, and I thank you. I'm not used to being on this side of the podium, as you have said, but I had many great years here. I'm here if you consent to have an opportunity to represent our country in a different way, but in an area with which I'm very familiar. As my colleagues have said before, I visited troops in 
in harm's way in every conflict that we've had when I was in the Senate. And very often there were NATO members with those troops. Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I've met with the military and diplomatic leaders as well. And I have to say that our diplomatic side, which is one uh, that I hadn't been as familiar with, uh, was amazing. In Bosnia, when we went in, uh, the Serbs were still shooting from the hills. Our ambassador resided in a bombed-out building that didn't have running water. He slept on a cot in his office to serve our country when we first went into Bosnia. I visited Afghanistan right after our troops uh, started going in. Uh, I went to a well, I stayed in a Russian-built institution uh, and the hangar that the Russians had built near a runway in Afghanistan uh, was the only place that the troops could sleep. So there were hundreds of cots under this leaky roof hangar and all they had with them were uh, a duffel bag with their uniforms. They were making way for the presence that we would have there for the building of a hospital, uh, for the building of barracks, so that those who followed would have a place to do their job. That's what our people do in the Foreign Service and the military. And my appreciation for them is boundless. I look forward to being an effective partner for our policies, for our military, for our allies, who are also making sacrifices for our mutual defense. NATO is the most successful defense alliance in the history of the world. It was formed in 1949, and at the time, President Truman said, following two terrible world wars in that century, by this treaty, we are not only seeking to establish freedom from aggression and from the use of force in the North Atlantic community, but we are also actively striving to promote and preserve peace throughout the world. It was determined that an alliance between Europe and North America sends a message of solidarity that would deter aggression and help avoid a third world war and in the event of conflict make earlier action against a common enemy more effective in protecting freedom for its democratic members. Does NATO exist to protect allies against any threat of aggression? Yes, that was NATO's original mission. It remains relevant today but NATO has also evolved into much more because today's security environment now encompasses a much broader array of challenges, including asymmetric warfare. Terrorism by ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other extremist elements seek a caliphate to displace religious freedom where it is protected throughout the world. Rogue nations such as Iran and North Korea have developed ballistic missile capabilities and may be close to achieving nuclear weapons, a threat to all the 29 members of the alliance and our partners. Russian disinformation campaigns and malign influence targeting NATO allies and partners seek to undermine Western democratic institutions and principles and so disunity in our long-standing transatlantic bonds. In its evolution, many questions are raised. Does every country in the alliance meet its agreed commitment? No. Improvements are in order. 
President Trump has called for a stronger effort from allies not meeting the Wales Pledge on defense investment. 2% of GDP on defense and 20% of total defense expenditures on defense modernization. Allies need to meet this commitment. We also stand firm on Article 5. President Trump has said that each ally uh, honor, should honor the pledge to increase spending because it will make all of our efforts more robust, our deterrence credible, and the cost of our collective defense will not unfairly rest on the shoulders of American taxpayers. I believe, as you have said in your opening statements, that the shared values of democracy, protection of human rights, individual liberty, and rule of law bind all NATO members. This bond must re be reinforced because it does unite us. I have said as a, unit, as a U.S. Senator and will continue to say that this alliance is something like the world has never seen. Our allies have been on our side throughout history. Our allies especially have been with us in Afghanistan, which has been a tough road. They have stood with us in solidarity in Afghanistan, where over 900 troops of our allies and partners have given their lives alongside U.S. soldiers for more than 15 years. Our NATO allies are our core partners in diplomacy and on the battlefield, our partners of first resort in dealing with old and new threats to the security of our people. The strength of this alliance benefits every member. If confirmed, I hope to represent the integrity of the American commitment to be a formidable enemy and a reliable ally. America should be both. In closing, I want you to know how much I appreciate the hard work you do. I've been there and I know that every one of you love America like I do, and you are here to make sure that our country is the strongest and safest for all of your constituents. And I want to make sure that we are able to preserve what our forefathers and mothers gave to us and fought for and died for in many instances. Security, freedom, and an indomitable spirit. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your comments. Ms. Kraft. Thank you, Ms. I would like to express our thoughts and prayers with Senator McCain and his family. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee and a special thanks to my fellow Kentuckians, Leader McConnell, who has been such a dear friend to our family for decades, and Senator Paul, who as a friend and a member of this committee, make me feel right at home. It is an honor to be with you today as the President's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Canada. I am humbled to be entrusted with this responsibility to lead our engagement with such an important friend, ally, and neighbor. I have not made this journey alone. With me today are my husband, Joe, our two of our children, Jane and Kyle, my brother, Mark, and his wife, Elizabeth, our close friend, John, Wyatt. My daughter, Mia, is home preparing for her wedding in two weeks. My sister, Micah, is watching from my hometown in Glasgow, Kentucky. Our other grandchildren and children are watching from Oklahoma. Although my parents, Dale and Bobby Guilfoyle, have passed away, they gave me the gift of unconditional love and an unwavering faith in God. 
for which I will always be grateful. I appreciate the confidence that President Trump, Vice President Pence, and Secretary Tillerson have shown in me, and if confirmed, I commit to work every day to live up to their trust in collaboration with the most talented and dedicated public servants. They are truly exceptional. On a personal note, I'm a testament to the fact that if this young girl who grew up 671 miles southwest from here can be nominated by the President of the United States as the first woman to serve as the ambassador to Canada, anything is possible when you work hard. And I know that Senator Shaheen knows this firsthand as I've been so inspired by her public service. My first diplomatic experience with Canada was in 2007 when I represented the U.S. government with the American people at the opening of the United Nations General Assembly. While observing several multilateral negotiation teams, I experienced how the American-Canadian relationship could be a powerful force around the world. I share the President's belief that the United States is deeply fortunate to have a neighbor like Canada. Just three weeks after his inauguration, on February 13th, President Trump hosted Prime Minister Trudeau. As President Trump said that day, our two nations share much more than a border. We share the same values. We share the love, truly a great love, of freedom. And we share a collective defense. American and Canadian troops have gone to battle together, fought wars together, and forged the special bonds that come when two nations shed blood together. Today, the economies of the United States and Canada are similarly intertwined. We are one another's number one trading partner. <clears throat> if confirmed, I will work tirelessly to further enhance our strong economic partnership, the most extensive and integrated economic relationship of any two nations in the world. The nearly $2 billion in goods and services and 400,000 people crossing the border every day are testaments to the strength of this relationship. I believe we can do better. If confirmed, I will seek new opportunities to foster further growth to create more jobs for both countries, while promoting free and fair trade to ensure that American businesses and workers can compete on a level playing field. A significant part of our economy is our energy relationship the world's largest. If confirmed, I would advance our shared goals of energy security, a robust and secure energy grid, and a strong and resilient energy infrastructure. Recognizing that our cooperation on energy is inextricably linked with the environment, I will also work to advance our shared environmental goals, stewardship of our common watersheds, land mass, wildlife, farm life, and the air we breathe from coast to coast to coast, as the Canadians say, the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Arctic. At 5,525 miles, the U.S.-Canada border is the longest shared border in the world. We in Kentucky know a, two th know a few things about borders. We have seven states with whom we share a border. And the only trouble comes is when they go home, like from Tennessee and Indiana, after losing to the Kentucky Wildcats. <laughs> The United States is fortunate to have a neighbor that shares a strong commitment to democratic values and works tirelessly to promote peace, prosperity, and human rights around the world. Canada is our partner in NORAD and NATO, and it is with great appreciation that I acknowledge the Canadian troops who have served bravely alongside Americans throughout our shared history.
If confirmed, I will be a respectful steward of this partnership with Canada. Thank you for this opportunity to be with you today. Thank you for your comments and your willingness to serve in this capacity. Mr. Johnson. Yes, I would like to uh, offer my family's prayers to the McCain family and uh, wish for a speedy recovery as well. Uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished senators, I'm deeply honored to be, uh, appear before you today. I'm grateful President Trump for nominating me to be the United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And I'm also deeply humbled that I may be permitted to act as an ambassador to the President and to the American people. Both family history and personal experience confirm to me that public service is both a privilege and an obligation, and that the ties between the United States and the United Kingdom are profoundly important. Today, I'm joined here by my wife, Suzanne, my, my children, Jamie, Daisy, Brick, and Jack, and most gratifying, my 97-year-old mother, Betty, who during World War II uh, served in the Navy teaching celestial navigation to Navy sailors. She inspired me the importance of service and love to the country, and I can assure you that she expects nothing less of me and the best of me right now. And if confirmed, I will not disappoint. I'm committed, I'm committed to the United States' historic partnership with the UK. Almost 100 years ago, my grandfather opened the first Johnson & Johnson facility uh, in the UK. That company is there to this day. During World War II, he also served in the military to help small and medium-sized business to play a direct role in the United States wartime partnership with the United Kingdom. This partnership, this special relationship endures today. I first traveled to the United Kingdom more than 50 years ago and have been back many times for both business and pleasure. I care deeply about the United Kingdom, our relationship with it. If confirmed, I will devote all of my energies to strengthening and deepening that relationship. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and Senators, as the UK undergoes a complex transaction, politically and economically, there are opportunities and challenges for the United States. I believe I can make a contribution by drawing both on my business and philanthropic experience. I've had the privilege of managing many organizations, bringing people from diverse backgrounds and experience and perspective. It's my belief that diversity of experience and expertise are strengths in achieving shared goals and priorities. In my years working with the Robert W. Johnson Foundation uh, to improve health and healthcare for Americans, I learned the value of patience and tenacity in meeting challenges. The foundation's 40-year, multi-billion dollar effort to reduce smoking is just one example. After my daughter, Jamie, was diagnosed with lupus, I launched the Alliance for Lupus Research uh, in 1999. I did this not only for my daughter, but to help the 1.5 million Americans that suffer from lupus, 90% of whom are women stricken with lupus. It took years to, 
to bring together uh, this organization with the best scientists, organizational structure, figuring out how to raise money, and to become, we're now the largest, the world's largest um, funder of lupus research, non-government funder of lupus research to treat, cure, or prevent lupus. Um, owning the New York Jets has taught me the importance of commitment and perseverance. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, one example, one example of that, not a football example, one example of that is uh, our 10-year effort to build a stadium. It's very difficult to build a stadium, and we, we accomplished the objective. Uh, we built a privately funded $1.6 billion stadium in the great state of New Jersey. If confirmed by the Senate, my mission will be to strengthen America's special relationship with the UK. Um, the UK has been our most steadfast ally in promoting freedom, fairness, and the rule of law. My first task there will be to know the talented professionals at the embassy. I've been thoroughly impressed by the professionalism and dedication of the men and women of the State Department. And the embassy is home to many of our best people. I, do I want to inspire and enable our embassy to provide exemplary service to American citizens and businesses. If confirmed, my goal would be to provide strong leadership needed to uh, preserve and strengthen, once again, this absolutely special and critical relationship. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. We very much appreciate your comments and your willingness to serve in this capacity. And Ms. Johnson, uh, based on my experiences over the last few weeks, we could use a little help with celestial navigation on health care. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Mr. Eisenberg. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, thank you, Katie McFarlane, uh, Senator Marco Rubio for your kind introduction and, and full description of my background. Um, it is with sincere humility that I appear before you today. I, I'm most grateful to President Trump to make me his nominee for a position of ambassador to the Italian Republic and the Republic of San Marino without compensation. I would also like to express my thanks to Secretary Tillerson for his support and confidence. I'm humbled for this opportunity to be of service to our country should my nomination be confirmed. And since Senator Rubio and, and Senator Lieberman were so kind to say a few words, I'd like to depart from what I was going to do and read my history and my interest in serving our country in Italy. Um, Although it is, it's interesting to note, as Senator Menendez, were he here, would testify that I lived many years of my life in the state of New Jersey while I worked in New York. And I have learned that there are some 20 million Americans of Italian descent. I am confident that uh, the large per largest percentage of them live in New Jersey and New York, and hence they are my neighbors and some of my closest friends. Um, I'm going to depart and talk rather on why I want to do this. As Senator Lieberman pointed out, Alan McFarland's and my late stage in our distinguished so far careers, if confirmed. Um, 
This is hard for me a little bit to depart from script, but it was a day not too dissimilar from this. Uh, it was a sunny day, not quite so warm, and I had a meeting that had been called suddenly and drew me from my original point of departure. Uh, and that morning when I left that meeting, I was met by two police officers from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey who asked me to get into the car, their car, and informed me that the Port Authority, the towers, had been struck not by one airplane, but by two. Um, it began one of the most difficult periods, not only in my life and your lives, but in the lives of our country and the world. My wife was picked up and brought to from New York to our home in New Jersey, and I was brought to a makeshift station in Jersey City where we waited for survivors to come and learned of the hit on the Pentagon and the crash in Pennsylvania. I was asked by the police to try and organize what staff we had from the police who were always there, always professional in respondents. And you know, it's amazing. It's, there are these plates in your life that change. There's birth, there's death, there's marriage, there's graduation. It was one of those unique shifts in life that has changed us all forever. Um, we put together a makeshift organization around and tried to identify who was lost. I learned that the person who had taken my life at Windows on the World had been lost that morning. The head of police who had climbed to the 27th floor and called me to say he was coming up to get me, learned that I wasn't there, and died that day. I learned over the subsequent days that we had lost 84 people with whom I worked and thousands of Americans. The Port Authority is a unique bi-state organization. It was my seventh year. It was the day before I was to retire from that office. I remained for 90 days after that. I traveled daily from our Jersey headquarters to what was then called Ground Zero. Uh, I acted as a spectator amongst heroes. I served coffee. I gave hugs. I saw the families. It hurt. The following few months as my term there came to an end, uh, Governor Pataki of New York asked me to serve on the Lower Manhattan Development Corp, which was to rebuild Lower Manhattan and asked me to chair the family of Victims Committee and Transportation Committee. <clears throat> Clearly the hardest task of my life. When I left that, I said to the people in those commissions, to the families of the Port Authority, to my children and grandchildren, who I neglected to introduce as I sat down, but who sit behind me, I pledge that if any opportunity ever came up for me to contribute to the welfare of our country economically or through security, I would do whatever it takes. If confirmed, I pledge my faithful service, and I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you uh, for those touching comments and your desire to serve in this capacity. Ms. McFarland.
Thank you so much, and, and Lou, thank you for sharing that with all of us. We all were someplace September 11th, and the fact that you were where you were has made our lives a lot better, so thank you. And to thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin and the members of the committee um, for the honor of addressing you and testifying before you for the uh, nomination to be the ambassador to Singapore. I'd like to thank my friend Joe Lieberman for his very kind introduction and for the family friendship that spans over half a century. Senator Lieberman is a man of integrity, enormous ability, and true patriotism. He's also a man that encourages us all to be better people, and we're all the better for having him in our lives. Uh, I'm also deeply humbled by Dr. Henry Kissinger's letter, which Senator Lieberman referred to. Dr. Kissinger endorsing my nomination to serve in this position. He's been a boss, a mentor, and a friend for decades, beginning with my first job as a freshman at George Washington University in 1970 and continuing through my years at Oxford, MIT, the Reagan administration while I was in cable news, and then coming full circle when I joined the Trump administration in the very same West Wing office that I had started working in 45 years before. I'm also thankful for that very strong endorsement of the President's current National Security Advisor, General H.R. McMaster, who sent a letter to all of you. Um, he's a man of great intellect and strategic vision. I'd also like to thank Secretary Tillerson for the opportunity to work with him and for the very able people at the State Department and at Embassy Singapore. But most importantly, I'd like to thank President Trump for believing in me and selecting me for not just one, but two of the most important positions in his administration. But I wouldn't be here today without the encouragement of John McCain, because in, the, in, in 2005, the two of us stood in the rain outside the Naval Academy football station, stadium, and he encouraged me to get back into public life and to run for office. So I think all of us wish him and his wonderful family Godspe Godspeed, and frankly, as he slays yet another dragon. If I am confirmed, I would not be able to take on this new responsibility were it not for the support of my very large family. My husband of 33 years, Alan McFarland, and our five children, Andrew, Gavin, Fiona, Luke, and Camilla, daughter-in-law Gretchen, son-in-law Matt Melton, and our five grandchildren, Arabelle, Alistair, Lachlan, Louisa, and Gigi, almost all of whom are sitting right behind me. If I'm confirmed, I would also not presume to take on the responsibility without the support of Embassy Singapore. It's home to some 19 government agencies and especially to the extraordinarily talented and dedicated foreign service officers who serve there. The men and women of Embassy Singapore are the very best of the best and I would consider it an honor if you allow me to serve with them. So why Singapore? Three reasons. First, our economic relationship is robust. We have a bilateral trade agreement um, since 2004, and it's the first such agreement we've had in Asia. The U.S. has a healthy trade surplus of nearly $20 billion in goods and services. Uh, U.S. businesses invest over $180 billion in Singapore, twice as much as we invest in China, five times as much as we invest in India. And 4,200 American businesses have headquarters in Singapore. More than 30,000 Americans live there. Second, we have a close security relationship. When America closed our bases in the Philippines in 1990, Singapore stepped up to make its facilities available to us. In 1990, we signed the U.S.-Singapore Memorandum of Understanding, which was um, expanded by two follow-on agreements since then. 
Today we have Poseidon P-8 aircraft operating out of Singapore. Our littoral combat ships rotate out of Changi Naval Base. And in fact, the USS Coronado, one of the Navy's newest littoral combat ships, is currently in Singapore Harbor. And my daughter sitting right behind me, Lieutenant Fiona McFarland, is one of the sailors that took the Coronado from its construction in the shipyard through its sea trials and its commissioning into the fleet. And third, we have a lot in common. We're both melting pot nations, where people of different races and cultures and religions have come together to create a meritocracy and a democracy. And our free market economies are innovative, dynamic, entrepreneurial. But even so, we urge them to go further in their human rights agenda. We urge them to continue their efforts to curb human trafficking, building on their ad adoption in 2015 of the Prevention of Human Trafficking Act. And we urge them to expand their political freedoms freedom of speech, assembly, and a free press. And Senator Cardin, I listen to your remarks, and I agree with them, and I know the power of the bully pulpit. In, on March 30th, 1981, Ronald Reagan spoke to the AFL-CIO here in Washington, and in that speech, he added a couple of sentences talking to the people in Poland. There were Polish dock workers who were trying to organize, trying to strike under their leader, Lech Walesa. President Reagan made a few comments, made a few sentences, and nobody remembered them because within a few minutes he was shot and narrowly survived an assassination attempt. But the Polish people heard him. And years later, when the Iron Curtain came down and the Polish people were free, Lech Walesa, the first president of Poland, said that what kept him going and what kept them going in their darkest moments of taking on the communist empire was the, the words of President Reagan and others, the encouragement he gave them to keep going, to, to demand their, their rights. And so I understand the power of what you're saying, and I would hope that were I confirmed, I would be able to speak out and use the bully pulpit in the same kind of way. Thank you. So if the Senate does confirm my nomination, I see my job as the steward of all aspects of that close relationship with Singapore. It's a security relationship because they stand at the entrance to the South China Sea. It's an economic relationship because it's the gateway between East and West. And I would do so as the chief proponent of American values. I look forward to answering your questions today. And if I'm confirmed as ambassador to Singapore, I would look forward to working with all of the members of this committee, as well as within the administration, to advance our interests. Thank you. Thank you. Without objection, uh, the two letters you referred to were be entered into the record. Um, I'm personally struck uh, by the deep sense of duty that all of you have, uh, your desire to serve our country, um, and look forward to your confirmation. Um, I'm going to defer my questions uh, and save that time for interjections down the road, and with that, uh, turn to Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to join you in... Uh, uh, each of you have an impressive background, and you, your testimonies here today have been uh, very much um, in keeping with the uh, impressive backgrounds that you have. But, Mr. Eisenberg, I, I want to first thank you for your testimony. When we think we have tough days here, I'm going to recall your eyewitness testimony about 9-11 and recognize you know, exactly uh, why we're fighting so hard for the security of our country. So. Thank you for sharing that. That was inspirational to, to all of us. Thank you, Senator Cotton. Ms. McFarland, I thank you for your response in regards to um, American values and reminding us of some of the great moments in American history where our leaders have stood up 
uh, to oppression and stood up to uh, countries that have proposed policies that are contrary to universal values. Uh, and you're right. Uh, Singapore is a small country. It is an important country. It's one of the economic powers. It is the gateway to the China Seas, which is very important for national security. Uh, it is a democratic country, uh, but it's a country that does not protect the human rights of its citizens against discrimination. It's a country that doesn't do well on freedom of the press. Uh, and it's a country that where America's spokesperson, our ambassador, can further the hopes of people of Singapore who want to see their country protect these rights. So I, I, I thank you for the statement you made. I'm satisfied by your, your response and just want to um, let you know that you have support on both sides of the aisle to reinforce American values in Singapore and elsewhere. And of course, the region in which you are going to be um, uh, operating, uh, there are countries that are problematic when it comes to basic values. So uh, you're going to be operating in an area that uh, your mission there, working with other U.S. missions, can very much further U.S. Uh, values. I, I will be checking in with you and all of the ambassadors uh, about how uh, we're proceeding on promoting American values, which specifically you have done in, in regards to your speeches, in regards to the people that you meet with, in regards to the priorities that you, that you uh, uh, supervise on the, the people that are there to advance American values. So uh, I, I look forward to that. Uh, I, you have a very impressive background, and I'm going to be asking you some questions for record, but I'm going to give you a chance here to, to respond to one of the statements you made. And, and it was made in 2013. This is before Russia invaded Ukraine, certainly before they interfered in our elections. And you said that Mr. Putin is one who really deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. I, I, I hope your views aren't the same today, but I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that. Um, Senator, thank you, first of all, for the very kind words. And thank you, thank you also for the chance to set this record straight and to put that into context. You know, I regret that it was a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, but at the time, uh, President Obama had laid a red line down on serious use of, of chemical weapons against its civilian population and was either unable or unwilling to carry out that red line. Um, when Secretary Kerry said that, well, perhaps if, if, if Syria were to give up its chemical weapons, we would think differently, the Russians stepped forward and, and said they would like to help broker that deal. Secretary Kerry, um, the Russian foreign minister, and the Syrians got together. They agreed that Russia would take the lead to dismantle Syria's chemical weapons program. Um, we now flash forward to today. They either were unable to do it or they were unwilling to do it. And Putin deserves no prize for that. Uh, in fact, when I entered the Trump administration, one of the first crises we faced was there were the Syrians again using chemical weapons against women and children. So I certainly feel that, the, as you pointed out, the invasion of Ukraine and then the other things that the Russians have done, perhaps with President Putin's personal direction, I have a very different opinion today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for clarifying that. Senator Hutchins, I want to pivot to Russia and uh, the problems that we're going to have. Uh, clearly, Ukraine is continuously under attack by Russia. We know that there is a continued presence in Georgia and Moldova. What can NATO do working with those countries uh, in order to shore up their capacities to deal with their aggression of Russia? 
Well, it is one of NATO's prime focuses, uh, the aggression of Russia in Ukraine, of course, uh, Georgia as well. Um, and I would say, uh, first of all, the European Reassurance Initiative um, is an effort to strengthen the areas that are most vulnerable, um, where we have four battle groups now, and all three, one in each of the Baltic states plus Poland. And the United States is leading in the one in Poland, and Canada uh, is leading as well, UK is leading as well, and Romania uh, in the other three. So I think we are beefing up defenses for a, uh, an aggressive Russia. And secondly, um, I am uh, pleased that the administration has sent uh, Kurt Volker over to Ukraine now um, as a special envoy uh, because I think that uh, attention to uh, the whole uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine is so important. And uh, as NATO has said, there's not going to be business as usual with Russia as long as they violate the agreement they made in Minsk, uh, which is uh, regarding uh, Ukraine. So Thank you. I just want to point out that we hope that within the matter of days we're going to pass legislation through both the House and Senate in regards to Russia. That includes a NATO-like commitment to unify on the misinformation attacks that Russia is, is doing in Europe and uh, their use of the Internet. So we're trying to give you additional tools working with our NATO partners to share information and best practices against the aggression of Russia. And I think that Congress is doing the right thing uh, to put those sanctions in place. I know there are some disagreements on some of the language, and everyone is working to make sure that it doesn't have unintended consequences. Uh, I think it's very important, and that is also an initiative that was made in the May 25th meeting um, of the heads of state of NATO, that there would be more of a focus on this um, hybrid warfare, the um, use of Russian um, uh, cyber warfare to interfere with several democracies within our alliance, and that is a focus of, Russia, of NATO, you. and I think your uh, bill and the inclusion of that language will give us more strength. We'll, we'll use your that. endorsement in the House to try to get it passed. Thank you, Senator. <laughs> Thank I think it will happen very soon. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Well, I want to thank all our nominees. We, we have, uh, from my perspective, uh, a, a very competent, qualified uh, panel of distinguished individuals who I think will serve this uh, country well. Ms. Hutchison, um, I enjoyed our visit. Would like to um, continue a conversation. We began in the office about uh, the INF Treaty. In July 2014, three years ago, uh, our Department of State issued a report that said the following. The United States has determined that the Russian Federation is in violation of its obligations under the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty not to possess, produce, or flight test a ground-launched cruise missile with a range capability of 500 to 5,500 kilometers or to possess or produce launchers of such missiles. Now, State has issued its latest report in April of this year again certifying that Russia, quote, continued to be in violation of its obligations under 
the treaty. While Russia has been developing and testing the missile in question for years, on March 8 of this year, General Selva, who is the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as you know, testified that Russia deliberately deployed it in order to pose a threat to NATO and to facilities within the NATO area of responsibility. And so my question to you is this. Given this threat to our troops in Europe and our NATO allies, as a nominee to serve as our ambassador to NATO, do you believe we should take tangible and urgent steps to ensure Russia do doesn't gain military advantage based on this treaty? Uh, should we compel Russia to comply with the treaty? Absolutely, we should reinforce our efforts to get Russia to comply with the treaty, and it is the position of the American uh, Defense Department, State Department, that Russia is in violation. Um, we are consulting with our allies. There are uh, many views about what should be done uh, to continue to encourage and push the Russians to meet this agreement. But I will say, Senator Young, that we also are beefing up defenses, and we have ballistic missile defense capabilities that are within the UN, the, the treaty that we have signed, INF. Uh, well, we didn't, but the treaty, we are complying with it, and um, our efforts to build up our missile defense um, in several countries in the alliance also are a signal to Russia that we are serious about this treaty. Well, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that uh, the pressure campaign uh, will ratchet up, it will continue, uh, and uh, no doubt <clears throat> evolve, and I'll, I'll look forward to continuing to work with you, uh, assuming uh, you are confirmed, which I believe you will be. Um, I would note, uh, this is a good segue, uh, the, the latter part of, of your response to my question. The INF is a two-part treaty. Right? It's, it's the United States, it's Russia, but Russia is not complying. So it's become a one-sided treaty, uh, which defeats the whole idea of a treaty, in a sense. And, and so meanwhile, according to the commander of the Pacific Command in April, over 90% of land-based missile forces in China's arsenal fall within this range that is prohibited under the INF Treaty. Now, China, not a party to this treaty, but it does, you know, the point here is, is, is that the world has changed since the INF Treaty was signed in 87. And it begs the question, if Russia fails to return to compliance with the treaty, without delay, do you believe we should withdraw from the treaty? That is something that has to be, from the NATO standpoint, uh, a consensus and uh, some of our allies are concerned that a withdrawal would make Russia more aggressive. And I think we have to consult. I know the State Department and the Defense Department are uh, looking at what are our best efforts to apply what leverage we have for Russia to comply. And I think we have to look at all the factors uh, before that decision is made. It's a fair answer. It's a complicated question. It's hard. Uh, we'll have to continue to work through this, and I hope you'll keep the committee informed as, as these um, assessments Of continue. course. Yeah. It will be, I'm sure, on everyone's mind. Thank you. Um, 
I'd just like to, to end here. Uh, Ms. Kraft, congratulations to you, and uh, I have little doubt you'll serve with distinction uh, in, in this new role. Um, I'm going to perform a test. Since you did invoke um, the Kentucky-Indiana rivalry, I see, <laughs> I see Coach uh, Calipari uh, behind you, for whom I have uh, great respect. Um, but uh, this, consider this a diplomatic test. Um, I'm going to play a, a very brief audio clip. Um, and um, this audio clip is from December 10, 2011. Um, and and I'd, I'd just like to get your response. Can you hear that? You can respond in writing if you prefer. <laughs> I, I suspect I'll be hearing from thousands of Kentucky residents as well. I have nothing else, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Uh, I believe that's a first. Uh, Senator Menendez. Yeah, that may be a first. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I have a uh, uh, procedural uh, comment, and that is that the breadth and scope of... Uh, the nominees and the countries and institutions for which they have been nominated makes it impossible in five minutes uh, to pursue the issues I certainly want to. I don't know how others feel. So uh, to the extent that there is the opportunity for a second round, I would urge you. And if not, I'm going to be looking for very substantive answers to questions for the record in order to be able to determine and move forward uh, with the nominees. Uh, we'd be glad to accommodate both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, congratulations to all of you. Um, Senator Hutchinson, it's good to see you again. Two quick questions. Do you believe NATO is obsolete? And secondly, do we have an unequivocal commitment to Article 5 in your view? Absolutely. The president has which, made which that Which one is absolute? <laughs> which one is absolute? My first question. The commitment question to Article 5. Uh, well, first of all, NATO is not obsolete, and I think the president has acknowledged that. Um, that he, after meeting with many of uh, the defense, uh, including General Mattis's um, appointment to the Department of Defense with Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and with um, Secretary General Stoltenberg, I think uh, the president realized uh, immediately that it is an important and successful alliance. He has made the commitment, uh, of course, to America's um, support of Article 5, and so has the Vice President, the Secretary of Defense, and the Secretary of Your, your role in reasserting uh, that would be very important, and I appreciate your service. Absolutely. Uh, Ms. McFarland, uh, judgment uh, in a United States ambassador is incredibly important. Uh, so I know that uh, uh, Senator Cardin lightly uh, touched with you, uh, your suggestion at one point that Putin is the one who really deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. But, you know, I look at a regime that actually uh, bombs uh, indiscriminately uh, citizens in Syria that obviously either didn't have the ability or actually, I believe, had the complicity uh, to allow the Syrians to go ahead and continue with their chemical weapons. I look at some of your other comments that have been made in the past 
uh, on Islam, terrorism, the people of the Middle East. Look, they're Arabs. They're not going to say to your face something they know is going to upset you. On waterboarding, even if it's torture, it's probably worth doing. On President Obama, to me, it's a dereliction of duty. What was this president doing? Well, he was playing a lot of golf this summer. Sounds very familiar uh, to what's going on this summer. But he clearly was not attending to the defense of the United States. Uh, and I could go on and on. When you are going to, uh, if confirmed, going to a country which is critically important in the South China Sea, how we deal with that issue, who has questions on uh, human trafficking, who has questions, uh, who also has a significant uh, population uh, that is part of our challenge in the world, uh, can you tell me that your judgment uh, is better than the comments that you've made in the past? Um, thank you very much for that question, Senator Menendez. I think that it's, it's important to, um, for me anyway, to think of this as a different kind of position. I mean, in the past, when I've been a media commentator, it was, it was to draw certain points, and perhaps points drawn very sharply. As an ambassador, if I'm confirmed, it's a diplomatic mission. It's to take direction from the Secretary of State and the President, and what their, their positions are, the United States government positions, I would feel that that's the, that's the image I want to project. Um, it's as far as representing American values and judgment and the whole role of an ambassador and promoting American interests and uh, the American way of life and, and America's core values, those I would promote absolutely. You know, America's a has, is a big tent. We have a big roof, and I would welcome all under my roof in and that the United regard. States ambassador must represent that entirety. Of Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you, uh, if you were to be confirmed, uh, how would you work to ensure that Singapore and the United States work productively to address tensions and seek common interests in the South China Sea, particularly at a time that Singapore continues to think about its balance of its interests between China and the United States? It's a topic that I've actually discussed with the Singapore foreign minister when he was in Washington, um, the greater topic of you know, not only the U.S.-Singapore security relationship, but the South China Sea and, and what does that represent. If Singapore has said that any of these contested islands, these militarized contested islands, that international law should prevail. It's also said that it, it is in a neighborhood where they have to recognize the interests of all of the countries. The fact that they have allowed us and, in fact, embraced us um, to have rotational deployment of our, our aircraft, our, our military vessels um, in the Singapore, various Singapore naval bases, I think is an indication that they want to work with us. We, our sailors train together, they buy their military equipment from the United States, and so it's a security relationship that I would, um, if I am confirmed, would want to not only in, endorse as it is now, but encourage to my, continue. My, my, my question, maybe uh, inartfully phrased, is that how will you tilt help tilt that balancing that they're doing uh, between China and the United States in our favor? The Singaporean government has, um, because we have a lot of the shared values, not all shared values, but the shared values of a democracy and, and the rule of law, they have indicated in many ways that they value our relationship and don't want us to leave. Um, one of the things I think is so important and why I was interested in Singapore for myself as somebody who's spent um, a lot of time studying Asia, is because I look at not just Singapore, but that entire region, 
as critical to American national security. They're the swing states. And if Singapore, if the others, if they conclude that we're not interested in being an Indo-Asia-Pacific power, if America is a nation in decline, as often the Chinese are encouraging them to say, we're the rising power, America's the declining power. And so a lot of the importance of, um, of the mission that I would have is not just the normal bilateral relationship, but also encouraging them to believe that we're there. We take this, ser this region in seriously. The fact that Singapore is going to be the chairman in um, 2018 of ASEAN, that they, they want to take ASEAN in the direction of cyber, cyber technology, cyber threat, you know, cyber defense. That's something that we could encourage with them. They've said that as they're looking for a cyber partner, they look to the United States, not others. And so I think that there are opportunities there to increase that, that security relationship with them. And I would, I would hope that, that that would be one of my primary missions is, is not only the economic interest that we have in Singapore, but the strategic interest. You know, it, it is the gateway to the South China Sea. That, which is a military trade route as well as, I mean, an economic trade route, but it's also a security route. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I don't want my fellow New Jerseyans to think I'm ignoring them, uh, but in, since my time has expired, if you do have a second round, I have a series of questions for other candidates. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Senator Rubio. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Ms. Kraft, let me begin. As you know, President Trump in, intends to uh, conduct negotiations to modernize NAFTA. What do you see as your role in that uh, modernization negotiation? Your question, Senator Rubio. 23 years ago, when NAFTA was signed, there were so many aspects of the economy that were not yet conceptualized. And not being confirmed, I haven't had a role in writing any of the policies. However, if confirmed, I'm looking forward to working closely with Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary of Commerce Ross to promote the priorities for the um, NAFTA negotiations. Mr. Johnson, as you know, um, as I shared with you yesterday, uh, because of my uh, uh, lifelong uh, being a fan of the Miami Dolphins, support for your nomination due to your relationship with the New York Jets is painful and difficult, but I'm willing to do it for the good of the country. I will, however, say that um, I think you and I agree that the country would be well served if a certain Thomas Brady of Massachusetts were nominated ambassador of Brazil. And uh, I just asked for your consent that uh, Perhaps that could, be, that could be arranged before September of this year. Um, I don't know why people are laughing. We got that out. I don't know why people are laughing. I'm very serious about this. Uh, anyway, uh, I will ask, and I see that uh, Senator Markey's not here to object, and Senator Shaheen, so I think we can get this done. Now, on the uh, U.S.-U.K. relationship, what do you feel? Obviously, it's a very close link, historic, uh, our security uh, I don't know if there's a rival to it in terms of relationship with the United States and the United Kingdom. What, what do you see as the most important issue today in our bilateral relationship? Well, if I, if I look at that relationship from a macro standpoint, it's preserving and protecting and enhancing that relationship, which has been very valuable to the U.S. for a long time, going back to World War II, but actually going back. It was coined in World War II. Uh, by Winston Churchill, but it was it was a relationship that's really going back even further than that, and it's one based on on trust and and working together through thick and thin for for many many decades. Uh, sec the security relationship is uh, is fundamental to that, and that's based on trust and competence and uh, sharing information and gathering information and being very innovative. To the, to the tasks at hand, which keeps changing. The world is getting more complicated with cyber 
and uh, the various types of uh, terrorism that are occurring now. So it's challenging us to be innovative and creative and working together even stronger. So this, this will continue to be an important relationship, very important. Mr. Eisenberg, as I said, I'm proud to have introduced you today. We've known each other for a while. I think uh, above all else, you can confirm that unlike New York and New Jersey, it does not snow in Florida in December and January. It's just a plug. But um, I will say this. Uh, I, I want to ask you this because this is often not pointed out. Italy has the eighth largest economy in the world. In essence, that $2 trillion of GDP, it is basically the equivalent of the Russian economy, which exceeds an extraordinary amount of attention. Uh, but also, I think, a testament to their capabilities. And, and so I'd ask if, if you're prepared to commit the, to, to press uh, our Italian partners uh, to increase their defense spending as part of their obligations to the, our, our, our treaty alliance through NATO. Now, they certainly have the capability to do it, and I think among friends and allies, that is a point that's been stressed by multiple administrations. There's a lot made of this administration's insistence on that, but if you go back in the record, you will see multiple presidents have made the same request. And I think for it, and we don't mean this in an adversarial way, obviously, towards our partners in Italy, but at $2 trillion, that is a significant economy with the capability to contribute to our, our mutual defense. And so uh, I would just ask for your commitment that we would continue to further what has not just been this administration's position, but what they agreed to do and what multiple administrations before us have uh, asked of our partners as well. Well, of course, my answer to that is I will continue to strive to have Italy uh, take up a greater portion of the expense for defense, but I would like to note that um, as we speak, um, Italy is defending the Mediterranean. It is now experiencing probably the most dramatic immigration and refugee problem uh, in, in Europe. They had 180,000 uh, depart from Libya last year with a significant amount of casualties and are incurring great and unusual expense. That number is being exceeded this year. They will probably take in over 200,000, and they're retaining within Italy in a very humane way, uh, monitoring trafficking with our help and support, uh, almost 90% of that immigration and refugee problem, while at the same time they maintain 30,000 U.S. troops on five distinct military bases. They have the second largest commitment in both Iraq and Afghanistan of troops on the ground. So in many ways, their efforts and what they've achieved is quite meaningful. They have committed as recently as the G7, and I think afterwards at a meeting between the prime minister and the president here, um, that they would continue to honor their agreement to move to the NATO requirement of 2% by 2024, uh, and they have moved in that direction meaningfully in the last year. Thank you, sir. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of the witnesses. These are very important relationships. I want to start with Ms. Kraft just quickly. I'm going to be with some great Kentuckians tomorrow. Uh, my wife's from Wise County. She and her family on her dad's side, which is right across the border, I think from Harlan, Letcher, and Pike counties. And tomorrow and over the weekend, there's an amazing event. It's called the Remote Access Medical Clinic, where people who don't have health insurance gather from all over the southeast of the United States to get free treatment from volunteer doctors and nurses. And it is an amazingly uplifting event because of the hundreds of volunteers, many from Kentucky and Virginia and elsewhere. And it's an amazingly heartbreaking event. Every time I go, and I've 
been going since 2002 to work the registration table. It reminds me of when I was a missionary in Honduras and that that was the way that healthcare was done in that country, which is the second poorest country in the Americas. And to see it right in my own commonwealth, it's, it's heartbreaking. But the, the valor of the Kentuckians uh, who participate will be a really impressive thing, and I'm looking forward to being with them tomorrow. To uh, Kay Bailey, congratulations. I'm so excited you're the nominee. And I'm, I'm going to be, I'll be real blunt. Um, my oldest was deployed with the European Reassurance Initiative on the border with Russia last year. And when he was there doing an uh, exercise in, Lith in Lithuania and others, Russia was engaged in cyber attacking our election. Russia was engaged in an amazing effort to cyber attack an election in Montenegro. And their plan B was to assassinate the prime minister, assassinate opposition leaders, all to try to keep Montenegro out of NATO. Russia is engaged now in activities in Lithuania to destabilize NATO exercises that are happening there. And watching that going on, and frankly, I was very, very worried in the early days of this administration to hear the president basically suggest that Russia wasn't doing anything wrong, but also to say that NATO was obsolete when the entire 1,200 members of my son's battalion were deployed there in harm's way doing work that I thought was important. Your nomination sends a signal that the NATO relationship is an important one. Uh, I don't think the administration would have asked somebody of your qualification if they didn't mean to send the signal that whatever the earlier statements or thoughts about NATO, there's now a commitment. And as you shared with me yesterday, if you wondered whether there was a commitment to the seriousness of the relationship, you wouldn't have accepted the nomination. And so I'm very, very happy to see you before this committee, and I'm very anxious to get you confirmed as quickly as we can, because I think this is incredibly important. Uh, to Ms. McFarland, uh, Senator Menendez asked you some questions about statements, and it is a little bit of a burden of being a, a commenter. You comment sharply, and your statements are mostly self-explanatory, but there was one that I was curious about. When there was press around your earlier position on the National Security Council, one of the things that was often mentioned in accounts that I, I was curious about, because it never was a quote from you, so I don't even know if it was accurate, um, is that you were uh, in favor of the Brexit vote. You approved and were happy about the outcome of the Brexit vote. And I was just curious if that was accurate reporting, and given that we've got a UK ambassador nominee and we'll have an EU ambassador nominee before soon, I was curious as to if that's true, what did you think was positive about that vote? Um, I don't specifically remember saying it in those terms, but at the time, um, I said that it's, you know, when the important thing is for the British people to decide what they want to do. I don't think it's for anybody to tell them what to do, and was encouraged by the fact that the British people, in very large percentage and large numbers, were taking it on their own authority to make a decision. So you didn't have a personal opinion yourself about whether the removal of the UK from the European Union was a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I, do, I do remember making the statement that, um, and again, I, I don't want to, I know this is an important issue, I don't want to speak off the top of my head, but I did say something along the lines that if the, if the British do choose to do that on their own, that that might present opportunities for them in bilateral trade agreements with the United States or other relationships. I don't want to catch you flat-footed on this one either because, so I may ask that in writing sure. with a reference and, and have you follow up on that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator, Senator Paul. 
Congratulations to all of you for your nomination. And uh, as a proud father of two Kentucky Wildcats, particular congratulations to my fellow Kentuckian, Kelly Nye. And um, sometimes when we put things forward, we don't get the whole truth. And so we heard a little bit from the senator from Indiana about a particular game in 2011. <laughs> but there, I think there was a, a rematch later in the NCAA finals. Do you remember who won the rematch? Kentucky Wildcats. All right. And then do you remember who were the national champions that year? Kentucky Wildcats. Absolutely. But uh, I think we've set the record straight there. I have a little bit of more of a serious sort of point, and then maybe we'll see if anybody uh, – we get a response. I think it's important that we remember that the State Department's not the Pentagon. We have a Pentagon. We have the mightiest military in the world. And uh, for most of you, and we may exclude NATO to a certain extent, but for most of you, your job is with the State Department, not the Pentagon. And there's a different role. I mean, the Pentagon is to have the mightiest defense and to be able to wipe out any enemy that should strike us, to be prepared, to try to deter attack, et cetera. But the, the job of the State Department is different. Your job is one of friendship and trade, and you're going to be going to friendly countries. Obviously, we're not, I jokingly say, I don't want war with Canada or Italy or England. But um, it is important that your, your role in the world, as you're out there mixing with other ambassadors in your region of the world, your, your role is to, to foster peace. And I think that's important. Um, Ms. McFarland, I think, was involved with uh, Secretary Weinberger and the Weinberger Doctrine, which she knows I'm aware of. And, you know, part of that was that we only go to war under certain circumstances. It wasn't that we're ever gleeful for war. It was that we restrict and restrain ourselves to only going to war. One of the points of the Weinberger Doctrine is we go to war under uh, last resort. One was that we go under when there are vital national interests. I think sometimes we get sloppy with that one. We just say everything's in our vital national interest, and that's really a conclusion that requires debate and the facts on both sides before we go. But, um, you know, my hope is always that there is a sufficient voice uh, for, for war being the last resort. I'm not saying we never go, but State Department's part of, supposed to be part of that. To a certain extent at NATO also is about preparedness, but still the goal of, of NATO is defense, not offense. And uh, I just hope all of you will uh, remember that and uh, realize that, uh, you know, really part of your role is to try to preserve peace and keep peace. And uh, if you'd like to, since I named you Ms. McFarland, you're welcome to respond about the Weinberger Doctrine, your role or what your thoughts are about your role in the world or our role in the world. Um, thank you very much, um, Senator Paul. You and I have had this conversation a number of times about the Weinberger Doctrine. I was... Um, privileged enough to be at the Pentagon in the Reagan administration, worked for Secretary Weinberger, and um, helped craft the speech that he um, delivered that, that was the Weinberger Doctrine. And one of the, there were several points to it, um, and these were guidelines of when the United States should consider going to war or using combat forces overseas. Um, one of the considerations was that we would do so to protect our vital national interests, that we, we would do so with a clear idea of what was required that would also have the full support of the American people. And finally, that our objective would be to win and to prevail. So I know that that's something that has guided your own thinking in national security issues, and I thank you for the, um, for the opportunity to discuss it, Senator. Thank you, sir. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you to all the nominees uh, for your willingness to serve and uh, for the opportunity to be with you here today. Um, Senator uh, Hutchison, thanks for the opportunity for a, a great conversation yesterday about the importance of NATO and um, the role which you've been nominated for. Uh, let me just ask uh, again here in this setting, 
How do you intend to convince our NATO allies to stay the course with us in Afghanistan, uh, given how much they've already sacrificed, given how uncertain the path is ahead? I'd be interested in how you think together we will make that argument to our vital, vital NATO allies. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for meeting with me. Um, Senator Kuhn's Afghanistan is hard. It's hard for America, and it is, is very hard for all of our allies. But we know that al-Qaeda is rising up in Afghanistan. We know that that is a common thread. It's a common threat uh, to all of us. And our allies have never flagged when we have asked for certain numbers of um, increased uh, uh, help or capacity, they've stepped up. They have stepped up for 15 years in Afghanistan. Our allies have been with us side by side. Uh, they are stepping up now in Iraq because we are uh, regrouping and doing more in Iraq. Uh, these are very tough duties, but they're there. And uh, to to say, what are you going to do to keep them? Um, I think they've been there. I think they have been with us. And it is our common threat. I agree. Al-Qaeda uh, is our common threat. ISIS is our common threat. So I, I will appreciate them and continue to encourage all of us to stay firm. Thank you. I have two more questions, if I might. Uh, first to you, uh, Senator. Um, how would you also help shape NATO's cyber strategy? We've seen cyber attacks in the past uh, on now our NATO ally, Estonia. Um, many of us are concerned about the cyber actions by Russia in American domestic matters as well as the matters involving our key allies. Does a cyber attack on a NATO ally trigger Article 5? Um, and if so, how should the alliance respond, and how do we strengthen cyber? Then I have one more question I'd like to get to, if I might. Um, I think we have to see what kind of attack we would be um, addressing before we talk about whether uh, it would invoke, invoke Article 5. However, uh, the, leaders, the leaders meeting in May as well as the previous defense meetings uh, of NATO have um, made it more of a focus and more of a... Uh, uh, an awareness of the cyber attacks of Russia and the interference with um, many um, uh, processes in many of our allied countries. Um, and I think cyber is going to continue to be more of an emphasis of NATO as we go forward, but I think the leaders have already uh, staked out that as a new focus. Thank you, Senator. If I might, Ms. McFarland. Um, thank you uh, for your service and your willingness to step up to this role. I had the chance, the honor, uh, to travel with Senator McCain uh, to Singapore, um, along with um, uh, Senator Barrasso to the uh, Regional Security Conference, um, and was struck at how broadly uh, our regional allies and partners expressed concern at withdrawal from TPP. Um, how will the Trump administration, how will you, if confirmed as ambassador, um, undertake economic statecraft? Um, and given some um, grave concerns, I think, about um, security issues in the Philippines and elsewhere in the region where ISIS is making some advances, yes. um, how will you work with your counterparts to confront the growing threat of terrorism in the region? Um, thank you very much for that question, um, and for, particularly for your interest in Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, 
the president, we, first of all, we have a, a bilateral trade agreement with Singapore, as you know. Um, it's the first one we've had with any Asian nation, and it's been very successful for the two of us. When, um, when the administration pulled out of the TPP, I had the opportunity to meet with the Singapore foreign minister, not knowing that I was eventually going to be sitting before you hoping to be um, confirmed to be the ambassador to Singapore. And, and he said, you know, we understand. Um, we have a strong and robust economic relationship. We want to continue it. What the administration has said um, is that the U.S.-Singapore free trade agreement is one that would be a foundation. It would be something that they would use as a, as a template to have bilateral relations, economic relations with other countries. And when President Trump withdrew from TPP, he said that for the, he felt that the best interests of the United States would be served by bilateral trade agreements. Um, I don't know the... I've been out of the administration for two months, so I'm not sure where the issues go, but that would be the first. And the second one is the security relationship. One, one of the reasons um, that I was interested um, in this position and when it was offered to me was excited about it is because I, too, had heard in my position um, as the Deputy National Security Advisor, I'd heard from a number of counterparts from other countries, and they all made the same point that you're making, that there was concern that the United States was um, lessening its commitment to the region, was not as concerned about what was happening in the South China Sea, that they saw as an increasingly aggressive China building a blue water navy um, and, and kind of muscling its way across the whole Asia-Pacific region. So one of the things that I would hope to do with Singapore and then work with the other ambassadors, if they're confirmed, if we're all confirmed, the other ambassadors in the Southeast Asian region, would be to put this at the forefront. Um, President or Vice President Trump went to Indonesia, met with the ASEAN, met with the, um, met at ASEAN. President Trump um, will make a, a trip to the Far East um, in a similar capacity, and so I think it, part of it is is just to show our interest, our commitment, and then to keep um, let them know that we're we're not a, a waning power, that the United States is not a declining power, that this is not an inevitable thing that's going to happen. We're just as committed to the region as we, as we have ever been, and we continue to be even more committed to the region, and also that we are a power that is not in decline. America's greatest days are ahead of it, and we hope that they'll be with us. Well, I hope uh, to have the opportunity to work with each of you and the countries to which you've been nominated to advance that, I think, shared and important goal, uh, which is to continue to strengthen our alliances to strengthen our role in the world and to uh, work in a bipartisan way in that. And Mr. Chairman, you've played a critical role in this committee in advancing that, that vision. So thank you. And to your families, um, thank you uh, for supporting your public service. Mr. Chairman, thank, thank you. you, sir. Thank you. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Kraft, thank you very much for being here. Congratulations on your nomination. I, I was, thank you. you know, thinking about Canada, it's the second largest trading partner of the United States. It's Wyoming's second uh, largest export market. Uh, 2016, this two-way cross-border goods and services traded between the United States and Canada, I $1.7 billion. So, you know, the two nations are, have a highly integrated energy market. We work closely together. Canada is the largest supplier of U.S. energy and the largest recipient of U.S. energy exports. Could you, you just talk a little bit of, as ambassador, how you promote American exports and work to further expand the trade relationship between our two countries? Thank you for your question, Senator. Uh, if confirmed, I'm going to work very closely with Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary of Commerce Ross to promote the priorities of the Trump administration's agenda with NAFTA and also with the different areas of 
softwood timber, the dairy industry, poultry industry, and the other industries that would be a benefit to the American prosperity and the American people, both um, small businesses and large businesses. Yeah. And then kind of the same follow-up with you, Mr. Johnson. The uh, United States, United Kingdom, an incredibly significant trade and investment relationship. Uh, you know, U.S. imports from United Kingdom were worth tons as well as uh, the other way around. Can you talk a little bit about as the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, uh, you know, what opportunities exist, what challenges exist for great trade and investment between the two countries? Thank you, Mayor, very much for that question, Senator. And um, if confirmed, Brexit will create, uh, I'll be working on Brexit and, and trying to uh, help the Congress, the President, uh, Secretary Tillerson figure out uh, what what opportunities and challenges that we we can uh, have uh, access to? You're right. The exactly the the relationship has been robust. It's not as big as Canada. I think it's about 200 million dollars of trades and services. Um, there are there are a million jobs on either side of the Atlantic that rely that rely on that relationship, and our job is to encourage, as I said in my opening testimony, um, the overall relationship with uh, the UK has to be enhanced. We want to enhance it and leave it better than we found it. And a big part of that is trade. And was, I don't know if that's a direct answer. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ms. McFarland, I w just want to talk about kind of the, the area of the world that you have been nominated to serve. Yeah, uh, I was in Singapore last month with, with John McCain, who you mentioned and how he in, um, encouraged you for, for your service. And we had been, went to Singapore for an international uh, defense conference, security conference, uh, following uh, the time that, that we went to uh, Vietnam. Uh, so, uh, so we had just been to Singapore, meeting with the leaders there. But Singapore really is a, has been, one, a strong partner of the United States in trade as well as in security. Uh, it, it's also a major focal point in that whole part of the world. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how important is the U.S. presence in that region, specifically in Singapore, and as ambassador, how you'd plan to further strengthen the cooperation between the United States and Singapore? Um, thank you, Senator Barrasso, and thank you, too, for your interest in that part of the world. I think you and I both agree that it is going to be an extremely important part of America's future as well. Um, a lot of economic estimates are that 60, even as much as 80% of the world's economic growth in the next decade are going to come from Southeast Asia and that region. Um, the United States has 4,200 um, American companies are headquartered in Singapore. That's up from about 3,700 about two years ago. And Singapore acts as the hub of a lot of the economic interests uh, throughout the region. So in other words, if there's a, an American company headquartered in Singapore, it will do business in Singapore, but it also may do business in, in other nations in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, et cetera. So given that trend, I think it's an important place for the United States to be to advance those commercial interests. Good as they are now, they can be a lot better. And it's an area of the world that we don't want to, um, we don't want to forsake or that we don't want to be edged out of as the, that area of the world increases um, in its economic relationship. Um, as far as all the other parts, of it, it also remains a hub for security relations. Um, you know, if you look at a map, the Strait of Malacca is, is the gateway. I mean, all trade that's going from Europe, from the Middle East, energy trade has to go past Singapore on its way to all of Asia. American trade going from the West Coast goes 
in that opposite direction through Singapore. So it's important for us to have an economic presence there, but also having a security presence there. Um, Singapore understands its responsibilities as a small nation state. It, it only has five and a half million people. Its land mass is about four times the size of Washington or for a New Yorker like me, it's like New York City without Staten Island. Um, so it's a small place, but it plays big, and it plays particularly big in the security relationship. Singapore um, spends um, close to 4% of its GNP on defense, and out of every, out of every um, if its entire national budget is spent on a number of things, but one out of every three or four dollars is spent on defense. A lot of that military equipment that they buy is American military equipment, which as you know, Singapore um, buys planes from your part of the world and trains in Wyoming. Um, the Singapore military, because it's a small area, they have bases elsewhere, they have training facilities in the United States and in other parts of the world that they then use that equipment as they come home to Singapore. So I think it's those things, it's the fact that it may sm be small, it may have a small population, but it's a hub for so many things, and it's an important part th of the world that we need to be in, and particularly, as you mentioned, as the other countries look and, and, and wonder about our commitment, because those are the swing states. If we, if we somehow are not present economically, are not present in a security sense, that's a part of the world that will make its own separate deal, and it's a part of the world that we may not be heavily involved in for hundreds of years. Well, thank, th you. thank you very much. Congratulations to each and every one of you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman, uh, very much. And I've been informed of um, Senator Rubio's earlier uh, comments. And I just want to say that um, I don't think that's going to be possible because uh, <laughs> co-owner Robert Kraft is a very close friend of Donald Trump. So I don't think there's any chance of Tom Brady leaving the country <laughs> until he's won at least two or three more Super Bowl championships. And at that point, it's whatever he wants, okay? So that's, the <clears throat> that's our approach, and you understand that, Mr. Johnson, very much, Notwithstand, yeah. notwithstanding the competitive advantage which the Jets would receive by, by that. I'm open right. to it. <laughs> um, and let me ask you, uh, uh, Ms. McFarland, uh, the rigorous enforcement of sanctions on North Korea is essential to get North Korea to the table for serious negotiations about denuclearization of the peninsula. Singapore has an important role in that effort. The United Nations panel of experts set up to monitor North Korean compliance with international sanctions has assessed that North Korea continues to evade sanctions through the use of front companies, including in Singapore. That panel's report linked a Singaporean company to a North Korean firm that is involved in the sale of conventional arms. The company Glocom was identified as a front run by North Korean intelligence agencies that sell equipment in violation of UN sanctions. More recently, the research organization NK News published a comprehensive report indicating that a Singapore-based company named OCN Singapore is involved in importing luxury goods into North Korea in defiance of UN Security Council sanctions. Singapore needs to fully investigate those allegations and ensure that North Korea is not using its open financial and trading environment to evade uh, sanctions. Uh, if you are confirmed, Ms. McFarlane, would you ensure that the strongest possible message is sent from the United States to the Singapore government that we expect full compliance with the North Korean sanctions? Absolutely. Um, 
as President Trump has said, uh, North Korea's nuclear proliferation program is one of the most serious and immediate crises we face. And um, the, whether it's the, it's the financial technology issues, the fintech, or whether it's the, um, ship, the counter-proliferation shipment, transshipment point that, that Singapore is for goods that might be going to North Korea of any type, um, it's important not only that we have these international agreements, but that we enforce them. And so you have my complete confidence that if I am confirmed, I will pursue that. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's hard to get the attention of North Korea if China is not imposing tough sanctions. There's been a 37% increase in trade between China and North Korea over the last year, and the same thing is true from some of these other countries. We just have to make sure that the pressure is intensified um, uh, so that North Korea does come to the bargaining table. Mr. Johnson, um, the issue of Northern Ireland is very important to the to tens of millions of Irish in the United States. Um, following his nomination uh, uh, by President Clinton, Senator George Mitchell uh, chaired the all-party negotiations that ultimately produced the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. Uh, it ended years of bloodshed, but a a crisis in Northern Ireland has prevented the formation of a government there since January when Martin McGuinness resigned as Deputy First Minister two months before he died. Since January, Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party have been in difficult talks to form a new government. The June election in the UK has resulted in, the, in Prime Minister May's Conservative Party forming a coalition with the Democratic Unionist Party. The DUP was the only party in Northern Ireland that opposed the Good Friday Agreement, although its founder, uh, Ian Paisley, ultimately agreed to a government in which he served as First Minister and McGuinness served as Deputy First Minister. The Prime Minister's May, uh, 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 May's coalition uh, was formed with the DUP, uh, and it's particularly troubling because the British government is the guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement and is responsible for mediating the political crisis in Belfast. So all of these factors raise serious concerns, especially since the Northern Irish voted overwhelmingly against Brexit. Now, even as there is uh, a, uh, a goal set by Prime Minister May that she wants a hard Brexit, which causes real problems, potentially, in Northern Ireland. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that issue and uh, how you would uh, well, as to represent the United States? Senator, I thank you for that very complicated question because it's a, it reflects the complications of what's happening in Northern Ireland and its relation to both the U.S. and, and the U.K. Uh, the Good Friday Agreements, as you pointed out, um, that were shepherded by, by the U.S., by the U.K., and by the Irish themselves, uh, led to roughly 19 years so far of peace, relative peace and tranquility from a period that was very turbulent. Th these are complicated issues, particularly now if you inject uh, Brexit into the equation as a factor, as a major factor, you have, you have issues, border, you have border issues, trade issues, immigration issues. A lot had been done, as you've commented on, with supporting jobs along the border to harmonize the relationship and to try to um, have a better understanding between the secular beliefs that were uh, the cause of some of the uh, unrest. 
I pledge to, to you, because I know this is an important issue, that um, in, in firm, I will spend a lot of time trying to um, do anything I can do to facilitate the establishment of a, you know, the establishment of an understanding and try to pick up on what you did in 98 to establish this and try to, because it's in our best, it's a U.S. best interest to have a, a stable U.K., including Northern Ireland. Yeah, so, I, and I thank you for that. I, the more attention you pay to it, I think, is the greater the likelihood that the peace will hold. The, it's the economic integration largely, the customs integration issues, the security issues um, that have really helped to integrate Northern Ireland into Europe and with, Southern, with uh, Ireland itself. So um, the more that Brexit kind of starts to uh, fool with that formula, uh, is the more it could lead to a delay in the full integration, which I think ultimately is what the people of Northern Ireland need to finally bring a permanent peace uh, and tranquility to their country. So thank you, sir. Thank Mr. you. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all the nominees for your willingness to serve our country here. Welcome to your families who are in attendance today and just appreciate the fact that your willingness, you're willing to, to serve our country. I truly do appreciate it. Um, I've had the chance to visit with all of you uh, about uh, uh, the work that you'll be pursuing in uh, various countries that you'll be representing, and the alliance, of course, that is uh, so important and critical uh, to the safety security of Europe and the United States, and I look forward to working with you in the years to come upon confirmation. Uh, I do serve as chairman of the East Asia Subcommittee, so Ms. McFarland, I'm sorry I'm going to spend most of my time uh, sending questions your way. We've had a lot of conversations already that even Senator Markey most recently brought up about North Korea uh, and uh, actually covered one of the companies that I was going to talk about. Recent reports, OCN, as Senator Markey mentioned, uh, was found to have been doing business with, uh, with Pyongyang, uh, doing business in Pyongyang in North Korea, luxury goods store. As ambassador, how do you approach that situation? How will you approach that situation where you see a report, find out some information about a company that's doing business in violation of a either a UN resolution or a US uh, law like we passed the last Congress dealing with North Korea sanctions. How do you approach this? How do you work with the government of Singapore or any nation for that matter? How do you work within ASEAN to mm -hmm. uh, spread greater awareness of the need to, to address these sanctions and fully enforce them? And how do you deal with that within the Trump administration? Um, thank you, um, Senator Gardner. And I do, if confirmed, um, look forward to a a long and fruitful conversation with you as the chairman of the East Asia Subcommittee. Um, I think that I would start with Embassy Singapore. It has um, not only foreign service officers who are economic officers as well, but they're members of the Commerce Department, Special Trade Rep, um, Intelligence Community, and others. And I, I think I would the first step would be to find out, okay, what's going on? Um, what are these companies? What's their economic tie? And then what potentially is their military tie to North Korea? Um, in working through the State Department, um, as well as those people at Embassy Singapore would be working with their home agencies, the, some 19, including even the Agriculture Department has a representation in Singapore. And then it would be to present that issue to the, the appropriate place in the Singapore government. Um, Singapore wants good relations with us. They have said that time and again, whether it's economic relations, whether it's military relations, whether it's political relations, security relations, they value um, our support at the United Nations and others. And so that's worth something. And I think that the ability um, to go to a friendly country 
and say this is what we have determined, this is what the United Nations has determined with regard to a company of yours, how are we going to work together to stop this? I mean, Singapore has said, the Singaporean leaders, the Prime Minister and others have said that they too are concerned about the, th the threat of North Korea. And as Senator Markey pointed out, um, th the only way that North Korea is ever going to get to the point of potentially giving up its nuclear weapons or changing its attitudes is that they feel the pressure. Now, where are they getting the pressure? Um, we've had a number of sanctions that are against North Korea through the United Nations and other international organizations, um, but th there has to be secondary pressure that's been brought to bear, and that's, as Secretary Tillerson has said, with regard to North Korea specifically, China looks at North Korea as a strategic asset. How are we going to change their minds to view it as a strategic liability? And one of these would be the kind of economic pressure. But as we're bringing economic pressure to other countries to do business, not to do business with North Korea, Singapore, we would hope would work with us in that same goal. You mentioned uh, talking about uh, presence, and you talked about the fact that if we're not present within the region, either economically or security, uh, from a security standpoint, that creates a challenge for U.S. leadership. Uh, we've been working on legislation to try to create a long-term Asia strategy. What, yes. what do you think some of the key points and frameworks should be of a long-term U.S. strategy to build that presence in Singapore and Southeast Asia overall? Um, yes, and, and I think that in the conversations I've had with you, um, the, the direction you're going, I think, is very much in, in concert with what the administration, what Secretary Tillerson and others have said is, is their goal um, in the Asia region. One place that I think offers an enormous amount of future opportunity is cyber. Um, Singapore and the United States have both been named as the two countries which are the best at and take most seriously the whole cyber issue, whether it's, um, it's intellectual property theft, whether it's cyber defense, whether it's cyber hacking. And since Singapore is going to be chairman of ASEAN, mm -hmm. the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in 2018, they've already said that they want the cyber issue to be first and foremost, not only for Singapore, but for the other countries in the region. Um, Singapore's goal is to be the first smart nation where they use um, digital technology, where they use logarithms to help various aspects of their, um, of their society, civil society. So I think that, that represents the future. And the world is going in the cyber direction, the Internet of Things. And if Singapore stated their interest in doing that, we know we have had an interest in doing that. We know that we're both very vulnerable. Um, we are the most connected countries in the world, but that leaves us with great vulnerabilities as well. So I would think that's a place to look. Um, and not only that I would be interested in looking at with Singapore, but any any work that um, you are doing as you proceed with this legislation that you're proposing. Uh, thank you, and thanks to all of you for your service. Sure. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to, your, to uh, you all for your willingness to serve the country. Uh, Senator Hutchinson, I'm sorry that we didn't get to serve together here in the Senate, but I'm glad that the siren of public service has called you once again. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you a, a question about uh, the role of, uh, of, of, of counterterrorism within the NATO alliance. I think there are still some pretty glaring vulnerabilities in Europe with respect to their ability to share information about terrorism threats, both to Europe and to the United States. It's as if the United States were trying to thwart uh, terrorist attempts uh, without the FBI, with 50 different state law enforcement jurisdictions voluntarily cooperating with each other. Um, is this an issue that should be left to the EU to figure out and to the EU ambassador, or is this 
uh, a proper subject for our NATO ambassador to engage with countries through that forum uh, to try to improve the ability of European countries to share information, perhaps through new mandatory procedures regarding counterterrorism threats. Well, thank you. Um, I think that is a very good question. I definitely think it is in NATO's uh, purview. And I think the president, President Trump, brought that up, and NATO has now affirmed that cyber terrorism is a threat in many uh, instances. Um, it could be uh, in a communication system. It could be uh, in any kind of uh, business disruption, and it could be in, in our military communications or um, military activities. So... Um, I think it is in NATO's interest. They have already agreed that it will be one of the focuses and one of the main focuses. Um, NATO uh, is uh, somewhat um, like the United States Senate or uh, any group that has different threats and different constituencies. Uh, some members of NATO are more concerned about Russian aggression. Others are more concerned about terrorism and counterterrorism, depending on where they fall geographically. Um, so I think it is very much a common threat, and it should be in the purview of NATO. I think it probably is in the purview of NATO. It's also in the purview of the EU. I think we need to apply as much pressure as possible to uh, clean up these vulnerabilities, in part because there are, are vulnerabilities. These are visa waiver countries in which um, these threats can land on our shores without any security screen. So I thank you for that. Your, appointment, your point also is very important that NATO and the EU are also uh, beginning to do more sharing than they have ever done before. Mr. Johnson, I know you got a question when I wasn't here earlier on um, uh, Brexit and, and, and the future of Britain's relationship with the EU, but um, I wanted to talk to you about the conversation around a free trade agreement with Britain. There has been some talk within this administration of uh, engaging in talks with Britain with respect to a free trade agreement. There's great worry. Uh, I, are, I am in the category of those who worry uh, that if this is placed before um, a bilateral negotiation with the EU on what we call TTIP, that it's going to provide an incentive for other countries to exit Europe uh, because they can get first in line for a trade agreement with the United States. Um, do you think that it's appropriate to negotiate a free trade agreement with England, with Britain, before we have engaged in a trade agreement negotiation with Europe as a uh, as a whole. Well, thank you for that question. Thank you for that question, Senator. Um, yeah, Brexit's going to be a complicated, it's going to be a complicated series of agenda items going forward. And one of them is free trade and how, and how that's played. I mean, we, I mean, the bilateral trade between the U.S. And, and that country and what impact that has, positive or negative. And so I think that has to be factored in. Uh, my I suspect that we're going to have to wait until this process unfolds a little more so we find, figure out what the pieces are. And as ambassador, uh, I would be, um, if confirmed, I would be talking to the political and business leaders and opinion leaders uh, in the country to figure out what vulnerabilities and what opportunities there are for American businesses and Americans. And 
you point out there's every one of these every one of these factors, whether it's negotiating a bilateral agreement or even looking at um, even looking at uh, cybersecurity, like you just were talking about. This is going to everything is impacted by Brexit and our and our ability to kind of predict and project what's in our best interest as this unfolds. I, I don't expect you to be able to answer the precise question, but um, I, I, I would just caution you on this issue. It's one thing for our president to cheerlead Brexit. It's quite another to reward them with a free trade agreement that will be um, fodder for many of the groups that are pushing for other countries to leave the EU as well. So uh, I, I appreciate you giving more thought to that issue. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you, Mr. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I uh, see the making of a diplomat there. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I've been asking this question of, a, uh, of all of our nominees when they go to a specific country, so it's not personal, but it's just a continuing effort. Ms. McFarlane, do you speak uh, Mandarin, Tamil, or Malay? Um, no, my undergraduate degree um, was in Chinese studies. And I did study Chinese intensively for those years. Uh, my graduate work at MIT was on the Sino-Soviet military balance um, and the Sino-Soviet military conflict of 1969, a dissertation which sadly I didn't have an opportunity to finish. My Mandarin is very, very, very rusty. And one of the first things I would do is look forward to um, trying to see if I could remember back 40 years and try to refresh that. Okay. Thank Mr. you. Mr. Eisenberg, do you speak Italian? Io parlo un po' italiano, signor. If you'll allow me, Senator, since you've asked the question, I was remiss on the opening, uh, gratified by the introduction of Senator Rubio, since my wife and I have now been residents of Florida for almost a decade, but very remiss, I might say, and not addressing the fact that nine of my 16 immediate family are sitting directly behind me who are residents of the Garden State. Oh, I'm, um, I'm familiar with that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know that you are, but would you, if you'd just allow me, my, my wife, Judy, we just celebrated our 52nd anniversary, so for personal reasons, to introduce my wife, my oldest daughter, Lisa Goodwin, my daughter, Laura Balestro, are here. Um, their husbands, Rick Goodwin, uh, it's actually Laura Barr and Dr. Kyle Barr, and... Uh, Unfortunately, my daughter, Stacy Lyle and Paul Lyle could not be here, but have three children who also will be voters in the state of New Jersey. So I would just be remiss if I didn't recategorize a little bit uh, my origins. So thank you for that extra moment. Uh, we will continue to take Italian lessons so that I can speak more than that opening phrase. Well, we should have made you the nominee to the Holy See, uh, based upon that uh, uh, large, expansive family. But uh, I don't... I don't <laughs> I, I, I do not believe that not having a language ability is disqualifying. And I didn't ask you my second question because you all said it in your testimony about whether or not you've visited the country. Unfortunately, some of my colleagues in the past have held against Democratic nominees, whether they did not speak the language or didn't visit the country. So I'm going to create a continuing record so that we hopefully have equity at the end of the day, regardless of who the nominee is. Let me, uh, uh, in that regard, I want to ask you Aren't all... Aren't ask Mr. Johnson if he could speak the British English? Uh, <laughs> we've been working with each other on uh, our, uh, our Gaelic. Uh, so uh, let me ask you all with a just simple yes or no answer. Do you believe that Russia sought to interfere in our presidential elections last year? Yes. I don't know the answer to that. 
but I think there's a, enough investigation and discussion going on, so I'd like to reserve judgment for the moment. You don't, you, with everything, the 17 intelligence agencies, you still don't have a view? I, I think it's likely, but I do believe there are investigations that are going on to corroborate it. Mr. Johnson? This fact. I haven't studied the evidence on the inside, so I've just, I can just go by what I read, and there, it looks like, you know, it could have happened, maybe did happen, but until I really, if I went, if I did a complete analysis with all the information, I'd be able to give you much better judgment. Ms. Kraft? Thank you. Um, I believe just from reading the material that everyone has had the opportunity to read that it looks as if, yes, um, I would have to investigate this further or learn more points Senator on this, Hutchins. but I do believe yes. Uh, I think from what our intelligence communities have said and what has been in the newspapers um, and, and other media that there is a good likelihood, yes. Uh, I also think it is important that we know the extent and how it was done, and that's what the investigations are meant to do. Well, and the reason I asked the question of it may seem uh, unrelated to your nominations, but the fact is uh, that the Senate passed 98 to 2 uh, sanctions. It's very rare these days we get 98 to 2 votes uh, on Russia for, among other things, interfering in our elections. And when I heard your answer, uh, Senator Hutchinson, to Senator Murphy about cyber attacks and NATO and how you describe the different elements of what a cyber attack would be, uh, we need to have our ambassadors abroad making clear, unequivocal advocacy in the countries in which they're assigned to, to join us in our multilateral sanctions effort, whether it be Iran, which is also part of that legislation, or whether it be Russia. So I'm a little worried that with all of the public knowledge, I'm not saying that they affected the election. Mm -hmm. The mere fact that they tried to affect the election should be of great concern from the average citizen to the President of the United States. And we need our ambassadors to be advocating that point of view as it relates to sanctions uh, when this finally passes the House and is signed by the Presidency. And I hope we can count on you uh, to do that. Uh, in that regard, uh, Mr. Eisenberg, uh, uh, in reference to that legislation, one of the concerns I have as to Italy is that while Italy has complied uh, with sanctions, it has relatively close relations with Russia and has indicated due interest in doing more business with Iran. Um, as my colleagues have noted, that we expect this legislation soon to pass the House. How will you engage with the Italians on maintaining economic pressure both on Russia and Iran? If confirmed, uh, Senator, I would intend to become more decisively involved in that discussion, but I, I would note that um, Italy is 80% reliant on its energy resources from Russia and Libya, uh, but they have continued to maintain their substantial support uh, on the sanctions, and uh, I have no reason to expect that I would not continue to encourage and try and help them to live up to well, that. I appreciate their energy challenge, and you're right. But as a NATO ally and dependent uh, upon uh, the United States as a major element of that, we need them, as well as other European countries that some of you will be nominated to, I don't have any doubt about Great Britain, but nonetheless to be engaged uh, in making sure that because the European Union is by unanimity, one country breaking away 
breaks the sanctions regime. And if our multilateral sanctions regime is broken, uh, then we have a real challenge in returning to the international order. So I, I commend that to part of your uh, commitment uh, to your, your work. And uh, if I may take one last moment, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, to Mr. Johnson, I, I appreciate the answer you gave on peace and justice in Northern Ireland, something that we spoke about when you came to visit me, and I'm glad you came to visit me. Uh, let, let me ask you this. The other problem with Great Britain right now is it's a critical security ally of us. Sharing intelligence is critical to the national interest and security of the United States. We had some irritants uh, between what happened in the Ariana Grande concert with leaks. We had uh, comments made about the uh, mayor of, uh, of London. Will you work uh, as our ambassador to assure uh, the United Kingdom that our commitment to security and our confidentiality in terms of the sharing of intelligence is going to be preserved? Thank you, Senator. I certainly will. I have questions about Canada, but I'll submit it to the record and look for a response. Thank you, Thank you so much. Uh, Senator Cardin. Uh, uh, Mr. Eisenberg, I want to follow up on Senator Menendez's point because the, your response in regards to Russia's interference in our elections, I fully appreciate the fact that you have not studied the issue, but there's been widespread reporting on it. And this Congress feels very strongly that Russia represents an extreme danger against America. That's the reason why we're going to pass and enact the stronger sanctions, taking away some of the discretion of the president as it relates to imposition of sanctions against Russia. Italy is a country that does business with Russia. Of the countries that are being, that mission, that we have ambassadors, that's the only uh, one of the four that currently does business with Russia. And it's very possible they're going to be impacted by uh, the sanctions. We have to work very closely with our European partners for sanctions to work against Russia. Europe is more vulnerable than we are to the activities that Russia is doing. So it's in their interest that we have strong unity between the United States and Europe in enforcing sanctions against Russia. But there will be business interests and perhaps some governmental interests in Italy that will resist some aspects of this saying, gee, can't we at least get a pass so that we can continue to do this and that weakens the whole fiber, the whole fabric of our, of our sanctioned regime. And we're going to need a very strong voice in Italy, uh, working with the EU and the United States to have a very united, strong position against Russia that if they continue to interfere in our countries, they're going to pay a heavy economic price. Are you prepared to be that person? If confirmed, I think I can de deliver that uh, message and execute execute on that message. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you all for, again, your willingness to serve. I, I do want to reiterate, especially in Italy, UK, and at NATO, I mean, um, Russia will do everything it can to destabilize and um, to pose a threat to democracy. And uh, I, I think it is rare that the Congress the United States Senate has acted in the way that it has, um, regardless of what people may or may not think uh, happened during the election, and I do think they did attempt to interfere. There's no question their goal is to destabilize democracies, and I'll, I know that each of you will be um, strong advocates for that not occurring. 
Uh, I want to say in particular to Italy, I know that you're not the ambassador, you won't be the ambassador of the Vatican, but uh, on my recent visit there, was struck by the public relations campaign Russia had done to hold itself up as the protector of Christians uh, and the fact that uh, the Pope and others uh, seem to uh, be open to that. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot of work that we have to do there, um, and that mostly is in relation to what's happening in Syria. And then finally, I would just say this, uh, in addition to passing a bill 98 to 2, this committee unanimously in the Senate has adopted a major effort to end modern slavery around the world. Uh, in all the countries that you're going to, slavery exists. It exists in our own country. I know that each of you will have questions about trafficking and that kind of thing, um, but we do hope that you will be advocates uh, on that human value. Um, the record remain open until the close of business on Friday. Um, we would like to get, I know a number of you have family issues and you need to get to countries before school starts and that kind of thing. Uh, it's an unusual time here in the Senate. But one of the things that uh, can speed it along is when you do get the questions, to the extent you can pay personal attention and answer them fully as Senator Menendez referred, uh, it will help speed things along. Thank you all for your desire to serve. Uh, the meeting is adjourned.